Good morning. Turn with me, if you will, to today's scripture passage, 1 Corinthians 15. I'm going to read it to you before we get started. Starting in verse 12. Now, if Christ is proclaimed as raised from the dead, how can some of you say that there is no resurrection of the dead? But if there is no resurrection of the dead, then not even Christ has been raised. And if Christ has not been raised, then our preaching is in vain, and your faith is in vain. We are even found to be misrepresenting God, because we testified about God that he raised Christ, whom he did not raise, if it is true that the dead are not raised. For if the dead are not raised, not even Christ has been raised, and if Christ has not been raised, your faith is futile, and you are still in your sins." Then those also who have fallen asleep in Christ have perished. If in Christ we have hope in this life only, we are of all people most to be pitied. But in fact, Christ has been raised from the dead. Would you pray with me? Resurrecting God, we ask that you would lead our hearts this morning as we receive your word. God, speak to my heart as I share with my friends here. And God, help all of us live in light of the resurrection. In Jesus' name, amen. Okay, my name is Andy. I am the worship and arts director here at Evanston Bible Fellowship. If you don't know me, come back next week and you get to hear Mr. Big Shot himself, Pastor Jason Lancaster. But for today, here we all are together. And now that we're getting to know each other so well, I thought maybe I would, I would just open up into a time of true confessions. True confessions. Here we go. You ready? I play video games. I'm a bit of a gamer. That's right. I play video games. And before you start throwing things at me and accuse me of neglecting my family in pursuit of digital leaderboards and glory, hear me out. I play video games with my wife. That's right, with my wife. You might even say, we play video games. In fact, we've been known to put the kids to bed, make a little dinner, open a bottle of wine, and spend a romantic evening fighting a war, or saving the planet from alien invaders slaying demons, or destroying zombie hordes, all together the drama unfolding in front of us and our marriage ever strengthening. As they say, the couple that slays together stays together. Now, one game in particular has become a favorite of mine. The the plot is pretty typical. You're a knight, and you're out to destroy the forces of evil, and you, you fight through castles and swamps and deserts. But but this game has a very specific method of educating you about how to play the game. And it's easy. It goes like this. You die. Over and over and over. There's no tutorial in the game. You just die. And then you come back to life, and you try again, and you die again. And you come back to life, and you try again, and you die again. And eventually, you survive only to begin the process all over again. Die again, try again, die again, try again. 
And it wouldn't be so humiliating if not for the fact that when you die, the game screen fades to black, and in big red letters, you died. Every single time, hundreds if not thousands of times over a series of date nights. Death is the great instructor in my favorite video game, but in the human experience, it's the great equalizer. Medical experts agree 100% of us are terminal. Each of us is dying, some very slowly, some more quickly. But each of us, as the poet Alan Seeger says in that famous poem that became one of John F. Kennedy's favorites, has a rendezvous with death. And as Seeger rightly goes on to say at the end of the poem, we shall not fail that rendezvous. Each of us will die. And even a cursory cultural analysis indicates to me that we are figuratively and literally scared to death of death. Think about it. Our society is obsessed with the staving off of death. Ad campaigns, you can roll back the clock on your body and look younger. Bob Dylan, Alphaville, how many famous songs are called Forever Young? But I hate to be the one to tell you this. When the game is over, the pieces go back in the box. You can't buy enough technology, you can't eat enough kale, you can't lift enough weights, you can't run enough miles to keep death away forever. Eventually, it's coming for each of us. And the Bible speaks to this terminal condition in Genesis chapter 3. We watch an incredibly tragic story unfold. We find out that not only are we going to die, but that we brought this death upon ourselves. You see, God, our loving Father, designed us to live in perfect, intimate fellowship with Him. But we went our own way. And we broke that fellowship, like each of us does, over and over and over again. Eve and Adam, our first Parents thought they knew better than God. And they disobeyed. Just as we do every day, they thought, God doesn't mean what he says. And they decided to eat the forbidden fruit from a tree they were told not to eat from. And in doing this, they set into motion the single greatest tragedy in the history of time. The story goes like this. After all is said and done, to Adam, God said, cursed is the ground because of you. In pain you shall eat of it all the days of your life. Thorns and thistles it shall bring forth for you, and you shall eat the plants of the field. By the sweat of your face you shall eat bread till you return to the ground. For out of it you were taken, for you are dust, and to dust you will return. It is impossible to overstate how devastating 
this moment is in human history. And unfortunately, the story darkens. Not only are humans now physically bound by death, we are also spiritually dead, flatline. Our sin not only separated us from God physically by getting us kicked out of Eden, but it also separated us from God spiritually or relationally as it rotted our hearts from the inside, leaving us lifeless. And in opposition to the God who wanted relationship with us. Our sin has separated us from God, and try as we might, we cannot clean up the mess we have made. We are spiritually dead. Ephesians chapter 2 diagnoses us in this way. And you were dead in the trespasses and sins in which you once walked, following the course of this world, following the prince of the power of the air, the spirit that is now at work in the sons of disobedience, among whom we all once lived in the passions of our flesh, carrying out the desires of the body and the mind, and were by nature children of wrath, like the rest of mankind. Physically, we are the nearly dead, marching toward our eventual end. And spiritually, we are the already dead. Far from God, lifeless and hopeless to fix what we have broken. This dire outlook is what triggers Paul's discomfort with what folks have been saying in 1 Corinthians 15, verse 12. Paul is startled and even a little disturbed by the claims. He begins his diatribe in 1 Corinthians 15, verse 12, with this statement. Now, if Christ is proclaimed as raised from the dead, how can some of you say there is no resurrection from the dead? Maybe it's, maybe it's a small but vocal, wounded minority. Maybe it's a secular, plebeian majority. But Paul hears whispers of people saying, no, 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 there's no resurrection. And if there is no resurrection, Christ hasn't been raised from the dead. And if Christ hasn't been raised from the dead, there's no Christianity there might be your brand of Christianity, which might look like political activism or social activism, but there's no real Christianity. And for spiritually dead people marching toward a physical death, things are not looking very good if these people are correct. Paul knows we need to be raised. You see, dead people need a resurrection. We don't need a makeover. We don't need resuscitation. We don't need self-actualization. We don't need reincarnation or renovation or an upgrade. We need resurrection. We need to revive our spiritual deadness and eventually to raise our physical bodies from death to life. We need resurrection because you can beat a video game. 
You can beat the clock. You can beat the odds. Some of y'all have beat cancer, but you cannot beat death. Paul goes on later in this chapter to call it the last enemy. Spiritually dead, physically dying, outgunned and outmanned and out of time. See, in a world without Jesus Christ, that's the end of the story. Look back at the passage. In the next section, Paul continues the diatribe. He gives us a taste of what life is like without the resurrection. In 1 Corinthians 15, 13 through 19, he unpacks the implications of the claim that there is no resurrection from the dead. I'm going to read it to you again. Spoiler alert, it's pretty bleak. If there is no resurrection of the dead, then not even Christ has been raised. And if Christ has not been raised, then our preaching is in vain and your faith is in vain. We are even found to be misrepresenting God because we testified about God that he raised Christ, whom he did not raise, if it is true the dead are not raised. For if the dead are not raised, not even Christ has been raised. And if Christ has not been raised, your faith is futile and you are still in your sins. Then also, those who've fallen asleep in Christ have perished. If in Christ we have hope in this life only, we are of all people most to be pitied. You know, elsewhere in Scripture, Peter, the Apostle Peter writes, some of the things Paul writes are really hard to understand. This is not one of those things. <laughs> it's pretty straightforward. Anyone who's read Romans is sympathetic with Peter. We get it. Like, whoo, what's he talking about? Right here, it's pretty clear. It's unfolded in stark, logical outcropping. Paul's talking about a world where the dead stay dead. This is as good as it gets. And your best day on the planet is the best day you will have ever experienced. And if you're anything like me, there are more bad days than good days. Without the resurrection, things are bleak and Christ has not been raised. If Christ never rose in victory over sin and death, everything Christians have been saying since the moment we found the empty tomb is in vain. Your personal faith is a sham. All the tearful prayer sessions, they stopped at the ceiling. The intimate moments of powerful worship, who are you singing to? All the ways the scripture jumped off the page, you might as well be reading ingredients on a Splenda packet. It's all in vain. Every word of Jesus in red ink in your Bible, the ravings of a lunatic, maybe, best case scenario, historical, Fiction, literature, who knows? But it gets worse. In verse 15, you've been lying your whole life. Every time you shared your faith, lie. Every time you gave someone an inspirational Bible verse to look up, lie. All your Facebook posts and Twitter tweets, you're just a deceitful person. If... Christ has not been raised. And it gets worse. Verse 17. 
Without resurrection, your faith is futile and you're, you're still in your sins. All the evil you did before you met Christ and he purified you, you're going to have to pay for that. People are coming for you. All the ways you've been delivered from your patterns and sins, they're coming back. You're not strong enough. You know that. Addiction, nope, no hope. No lasting hope for real healing if Christ is still in the ground. And if there's no resurrection, everyone we love who died believing in Christ, they're just gone. Verse 18 says, never going to see them again. No reunion. And if you told someone they're in a better place, they're not. They're in the ground. Does that sound like a better place to you? This is the worldview of a reality without Christ. Everyone you love is compost. And one day you too will become compost. And in 500 years, nobody will remember you. And nobody will be talking to you. And then Paul sums it up. In verse 19, he says, Without a resurrection, Christians out of everybody, every sad group of believers on the planet, we are the most pitiful. If there is no resurrection, literally all of history is changed for the worse. And Christians will see their entire worlds unravel like a Polaroid photograph in reverse. It just fades to black. I can almost see the letters now in red ink. You died. But our God is merciful. Praise be to God that the story and the passage, they don't end there. Look back at your text at verse 20. That most triumphant of sentences. But in fact, Christ has been raised from the dead. But in fact, Christ has been raised from the dead. Early in my time at EBF, I heard a sermon. And Pastor Jason talked about an interview that a pastor did with a news anchor. And the news anchor said... If they found Jesus' bones, what would that do to your faith? And he said, this pastor said, nothing. My faith is unshakable. And I remember Jason standing on this stage and saying, that guy's a fool. Because Christianity is all about a historical fact of the resurrection. We're saying it happened. It sounds very mystical. We're saying it happened. We're saying that Christ died really dead and then was resurrected to life, really alive. Because of the empty tomb, the empty tomb that is the cornerstone of Christianity, there's hope. There is hope. Fortunately for us, God himself, the sovereign Lord of the universe, is overwhelmed with affection for you and for me. God is overcome with love for us, and God is overcome with compassion toward us. God looks at us in our dead state and says, this, this is terrible. What has happened? 
But God, knowing our future disobedience, set into motion the most amazing rescue plan ever put on. More impressive than any Navy SEAL, more impressive than any government overthrow, God came to get us. Let's go back to Ephesians 2, and I'm going to keep reading this time. We're going to see this unfold. Here is the pivot point in human history. And you were dead in the trespasses and sins in which you once walked, following the course of this world, following the prince of the power of the air, the spirit that is now at work in the sons of disobedience, among whom we all once lived in the passions of our flesh, carrying out the desires of the body and the mind, and were by nature children of wrath, like the rest of mankind. But God, being rich in mercy because of the great love with which he loved us, even when we were dead in our trespasses, made us alive together with Christ. By grace you've been saved and raised us up with him and seated us with him in the heavenly places in Christ Jesus. I am not sure there are two more important words in all of Scripture than but God. Can you imagine if that was not there? You were children of wrath like the rest of mankind. But God, God interrupts human history. He writes himself back into the story. He sends Christ, fully God, to become a man and to live an obedient life that we were unable to live. And if you're honest, you'll say, are unable to live. And Christ lives this perfect life, and then he dies in our place for our sins. And then he raises the triumphant raising of Jesus Christ to life after he was dead, really dead. This is the fulcrum of history. Because of Christ's resurrection, we also can have resurrection. Christ came and paid the penalty for our crimes that we couldn't pay. You can't do enough good stuff. You just can't. You cannot bridge the gap. It is too wide. The offense is against an infinitely holy God. You can't pay back the debt. You'll be washing dishes forever to pay the bill. You can't do it. But Christ has done it. Christ has come and made a way for us to get back into proper relationship with God, our loving Father. He leads us out of the woods and back into relational Eden as God designed it. We were dead, and now we are alive. Spiritually, we have been resurrected with Christ, and we have the hope of a bodily resurrection. Later in 1 Corinthians 15, Paul unpacks this resurrection for us. He says, we shall not all sleep, but we shall all be changed in a moment, in the twinkling of an eye, at the last trumpet. For that trumpet will sound, and the dead will be raised, imperishable, and we shall be 
changed. He goes on and says, death is swallowed up in victory. Death, where is your victory, death? Where is your sting? See, the sting of death is sin, but thanks be to God who gives us victory through Jesus. Literal, physical resurrection in the last days, never to die again. The last enemy defeated. And not only that, y'all, it's like an upgrade, right? God is the original hipster pushing sustainability. He's like, that was perishable. I'm going to give you imperishable. He was green before any of us. And in a couple of short weeks, we're going to start the book of Revelation. And we're going to spend a long time in that book. And I hope you'll be here for that. Because we're going to see just how faithful God is to his word. And we're going to see God make all things new. And we're going to see believers physically resurrected to match their spiritual resurrection, feasting and drinking and eating at the table with our Lord and great Savior, Jesus Christ. We're going to give praise to the resurrecting God and our resurrected Savior, Jesus Christ. Verse 20 again, but in fact, Christ has been raised from the dead. He has been raised. Maybe you have a a TV show. I don't mean watch a TV show. Maybe you have a TV show. The kind of show where if you watch an episode without your spouse, it's like they find out you had a second family. I mean, you have a TV show. In our house, it's Game of Thrones. Okay. And in the most recent season, I'll avoid some spoilers if I can, right? A major, major character was murdered. Dead. Really dead. As far as you can be dead on TV. And mind you, that happens a lot in this show. You sort of get used to it. Like, oh, well, another character I invested in is dead. And for a few episodes, he's dead. And then, miraculously, dramatically, maybe a little predictably, it's resurrected. And that got me thinking. They wouldn't resurrect this character flippantly, right? There's budget dollars to consider. You've got to stage a resurrection scene. It's expensive. And the ongoing years of contract, when people think he's dead, but you're still paying him. The impact of this storyline and the way it impacts the geopolitical and socioeconomic themes in the show, and not, not to mention the ill will of the fans who were like, we thought he was dead. But there he is, back to life. Resurrection is a pretty substantial undertaking, okay? And I'm pretty confident this guy, who we just spent all this time and money resurrecting, has a purpose moving forward, okay? I think he's going to be important a little bit if he's the only guy brought back to life. See, the character's resurrection indicates his importance, and Christ's resurrection indicates his importance, but moreover, our resurrection indicates our importance. See, God raised us with Christ, and that resurrection gives us a purpose, We have a part to play in the slow unfolding of God's grace for humanity. And God has spent the whole budget raising us to life. When you consider the millions of dollars that the showrunners spend to resurrect a character I care about on 
my TV show, how much more is the cost God has paid to raise us to life, sending his beloved son to put skin on and die in our place? You can rest assured, God wants to use you in the next couple of seasons as this thing winds up. To be raised from the dead is, is miraculous. And, you know, like in your favorite movies, characters come back to life and they're always a little different. You, can, you can't come back from the other side unchanged. And, and more than that, little, little family talk. Our resurrected bodies, we were dead, alive, they smell a little funny. They smell a little weird. Second Corinthians says it this way, we are the aroma of Christ to God among those who are being saved and among those who are perishing. To one, a fragrance from death to death. To the other, a fragrance from life to life. You smell weird. You just do. You smell a little like death, a little like life. As we look forward to our bodily resurrection, we already smell weird. We smell like life to those who come to faith in Christ, and we smell like death to the unbelieving world. And you carry that smell. This is actually one of our purposes as resurrected people, is to smell like Christ in our lives. You carry that smell into your workplace, onto your campus, into your marriage and family. And people see you and they think, guy smells a little weird. Something weird about that guy. Something weird. And Maybe you're like, I don't smell weird, I'm normal. If you don't smell anything different than the world, check in. Have you really been resurrected? Because you should smell a little weird. I'm going to read another translation of today's text. This is today's passage in the Andy Standard Version. It reads a little differently. I've brought this version up before when I've preached. And you're about to see that I have serious Bible translation chops, Okay. Here's today's passage, and I've I've translated it for us. It's very faithful to the whatever. Christ was raised from the dead. It's beautiful to hear you all acknowledging that because there is a resurrection from the dead because this is the truth. This is the bedrock event of human history. I'm going to say it again. There's a literal bodily resurrection of the dead. Christ died, but... He has indeed been raised. And because Christ died and has indeed been raised, our preaching is not in vain. Your faith is not in vain. We bring God tremendous glory by being honest about his character because we testify that God raised Christ, whom he did indeed raise, since it is true that the dead are raised. For the dead are indeed raised, and Christ has for certain been raised. It's a historical fact. And since Christ has indeed been raised, your faith is not in vain, and you've been set free from your bondage to sin. And everyone you know who you love, who died believing in Christ, they're in a better place. And you can look forward to your glorious reunion with them together in the presence of God. We look forward in hope, because Christ is our hope in this life and in the life to come. Therefore, we are filled with compassion for the lost and for all those who do not treasure the resurrected Christ, son of the resurrecting God above all else, because anyone who rejects Christ is most to be pitied. So we must be compassionate and talk about our faith with them, because in fact, Christ has been raised from the dead. And I just think this should change your life. 
I just really think this should change your life. When you reframe this passage and see what Paul is claiming, if this is true, it changes everything. This is the difference between Christianity and every other religion you've dabbled in over your lifetime. God didn't set the world in motion and sit back waiting to see what happened. God didn't let us flounder in our sins, but came to get us. He came on a rescue mission. God stays involved. Other religions say, do these good works and I will save you. God says, no, 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 I'm saving you. And now I've got good stuff for you to do. Christ's resurrection is enough. I'm accepting you. Believe in him. And I'm going to give you all kinds of good works to do. And you're going to want to do them. The reality of the resurrection changes our thoughts about relationships and money and sex and time and career and education. It renovates everything if you've been resurrected. Everything changes. And never think you did it. Later in that Ephesians 2 passage, Paul says, by grace you have been saved through faith. It's not your own doing. Don't boast about it. Be humble. But you are God's workmanship, created for good works, which God prepared beforehand. See, God knew, I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to fix this thing. The people I made, they can't fix what they broke. But just like my son can't fix his train track when it breaks, I can fix it. And I love him and I want to fix it. I can't wait to fix it. Just ask, let me help you. I want to help you. Sometimes I, gotta just, I just got to intervene, get that thing moving again. Because resurrection requires an outside force acting. Remember, you're dead. Dead people don't do anything. But praise be to God and praise be to Christ whose triumphant resurrection gives us unrelenting purpose. Because of the resurrection, we are not cosmic orphans. After raising us from spiritual death, God gives us so much to do. All these things he has planned for us, all these dreams, he says, and when you come back to me, we're going to make stuff happen, man. Like when I tell my children, we're going to watch Finding Nemo. You know, I'm doing that. I'll watch that movie over and over and over if I have to, because I just want to spend time with them. And God says, I got stuff to do with you. We're going to reach the lost. We're going to preach the gospel. We're going to bless the poor. We're going to care for the widow and orphan. We're going to seek renewal in our country and on our planet, because you're back to life. Finally alive, we are able to do the good work God has designed for us to do. And our fresh affections spur us on to love one another. You see, because of the resurrection, because that history of death has been broken, we see past the broken world. Each of us has been so wounded and hurt by this world. But because of Jesus Christ's triumphant resurrection, we see through it. Our pain is not permanent. The last enemy has been defeated. Jesus' resurrection is the fulcrum of history. At once, the darkest moment of the eclipse when Christ is hanging on the cross, but also light breaking forth as the sun shines again. It's only dark for a little while. Dead people need a resurrection. Christ's resurrection gives us unshakable hope, and our resurrection gives us unrelenting hope purpose, our quest for meaning and significance is satisfied in the open arms of God. 
as resurrected people awaiting our future resurrection, we must share this hope of Christ. Because we're saying that there's nothing sadder than someone who doesn't know that God loves them. That someone far from God is in the saddest place they've ever been. And we can seek God's heart for restoration there. Or maybe, maybe you never heard this before. Maybe you're sitting here this morning, you're like, preacher, you're kind of young, and you don't know me. You don't know what I've been through. You haven't suffered like I suffered. Maybe I haven't. Maybe it's all too good to be true. Maybe you tried religion, you were disappointed, you kept working hard, you climbed the ladder, nothing. Here's what I'm going to challenge you if that's you. That same Jesus who rose from death, he wants relationship with you. He calls to you, start over, repent of your sin, put your faith in me, believe that I am Lord. Because if what I'm saying is true, it would change everything. If what I'm saying is true, if what we sang about is true, everything has changed. My encouragement to you is consider the claims of Jesus Christ, who claimed to be God and who rose in victory. And if you're a Christian, you've been around the block a few times, this ain't your first rodeo. I ask you this. Does your life smell a little weird? Do you live like somebody who believes that your God sent his son to die and was resurrected? Have you seen somebody crawl out of the grave? Does the way you manage your finances, the way you lead your family, the way you pursue your career, is it reflective of that reality, the historical fact of the resurrection? I encourage you, if you're a Christian here this morning, ask yourself, am I living like somebody who's seen a dead man come to life never to die again? And for all of us, we're going to come to the communion table very soon. You're going to take that bread and dip it in that juice and pull it out, and you're going to put it in your mouth and walk away. But I just want you to marvel that when you do this, you are rehearsing the beauty of the resurrection into the grave, out in triumphant victory, into you. This is communion. It's communion with God and the belief that we have the opportunity to rehearse the most beautiful drama that has ever unfolded. So as you come to the table this morning, come as people who believe in the all-sufficient sacrifice, the tragic death and triumphant resurrection of Jesus Christ, our Lord and Savior, who is resurrected in victory and given us a purpose. Let's pray together. Lord, I ask for your faithfulness to us as we continue to worship you through taking the Lord's Supper, through singing to you, Father, through giving, and Lord, through community as we move into our lives. Help us never forget the miracle you've worked in our hearts, Lord, and the miracle you will work in eternity as we get to feast with you. God, make us ever mindful of the resurrection. Keep us always focused on the things that you've set before us. And God, I ask that you be faithful to each one of us as we come to you now, we come to your table. Lord, speak to our hearts about the reality of who you are. In Jesus' name, amen.